Hi everyone, welcome to Behind the Grid, where we explore worldviews from around the world and the key moments that change them forever. What I want to offer you right now is an opportunity to experience your world through someone else's story and to perceive your challenges from a fresh perspective so that you can get past them and reach your wildest goals. I'm your host, Chris Owl, and welcome to the show. Before we start, I want to give a big thank you to our sponsor, Essential Vibes Frequency Jewelry. They're a really cool company. They found a way to put frequencies into metals and crystals, which have different effects when you wear them on your body. If you want to check them out, go to essentialvibes.ca slash owl. Today I'm talking to Adrienne McLean. Adrienne is the host of That's Allowed podcast, where she goes deep into the emotional stories that people don't express, that they never get to tell. And she is a brand therapist, is how I want to describe it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great way of putting it. I guess technically it's like a, a brand voice consultant. Yeah. And she really helps people get their stories out both professionally and uh, for fun on on the podcast as well, which I've been on. I found really healing. So I'm excited today to have Adrienne come and share her story and and how she views the world. And we can all learn a bit from Adrienne. Adrienne, welcome. Thank you. Um, so just FYI, my last name is McKeon. No one so ever get no 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 one ever gets it right. It's one of those things, it's like a nice little test, you know, like how well do you know me? Uh, I've known people, yeah, I've known people for years who thought my last name was McLean, because that capital I looks exactly like an L in Sans Serif fonts. Oh yeah, it does. Okay, which McKeon. just about everyone uses. Yeah. So it's McKeon. What does your last name mean? So it's actually a cool story. The um, <laughs> a long, long time ago in Scotland, uh, there were a bunch of you know tribes basically, and the English government, you know, the, the king was trying to get them all to sign this like fealty oath to the to the kingdom of England, right? Okay. And McKeon uh, was a stubborn guy <laughs> who was like, I do not want to sign this thing. Uh, he did eventually sign it, but um, he he was like the last one. So it was um, the clan, clan Donald, Clan McDonald. Um, but this guy's name was McKeon and his kind of group was were the McKeons. Wow. And so what ended up happening is the king was really mad and wanted to make an example of uh, McKeon and his clan for being so late in signing this fealty oath. And so he sent the Campbells, who were his kind of hired guns at that time, uh, to go and basically kill them all. But the way they did this was really like against all the codes of honor and everything of the time. They showed up in a blizzard and the McKeons, of course, took them in and gave them food and gave them wine and gave them a place to sleep. And then they got up in the middle of the night and killed everybody. Whoa. A few people, of course, escaped to tell this story. Um, a lot of them died in the snow, but, you know, a, a handful survived and got to a place called Audenmerken, where they built a new castle. And so I am the kind of result of that survival story, which I just really connect to on so many levels. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so the, you know, the, the, the rivalry between the McDonald's and the Campbell's 
if you know anything about, you know, Scottish culture, you know, but it's like the Hatfields and the McCoys. And that's where that comes from, is the massacre of Glencoe, which was the McKeons. That's so, so intense. How, yes. do you, how do you find that story relates to you now? How do you find that, that you are like, integrating that? I imagine there would be an element of maybe stubbornness because the, <laughs> the, the last ones. And then there might also be some like actual inner healing to do. Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely a rebellious streak in me that's like, you know, I'm part of the resistance. Like I don't, you know, <laughs> I don't go for the status quo. But I think there's also that kind of, um, I, I guess, survivor dogma that you carry around, that like ancestor trauma that you carry around of like that victim story. And so I try really hard to not hook into that victim story of like, you know, we were, we were in the right and we were wronged. And, you know, it's like, okay, it was a complicated situation. Everybody was doing what they had to do to survive in a really messed up place and time. So, you know, I don't hold it against the Campbells. If there's any Campbells listening, I love you. You know, I know I, a Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> Not your fault. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's healing. There's always healing that, that needs to be done um, around so many things that we don't even remember or, or know about. <laughs> Um, but I, but I, what I love about the story is just the perseverance of them and how they were like, okay, we're going to find a way to survive and we're going to find a way to, you know, uh, keep the family name going. And so I have adopted that by, uh, it's actually my mom's maiden name. I took it on, my sister took it on, uh, when we got divorced, we took it as our last names and I, uh, made a deal with my husband and I said, if we have a daughter, I'm giving her the name McKeon. Wow. If we have a son, you know, he can have the name Kaufman. But if it's a, a girl, then she's a McKeon. And so my okay. daughter's last name is McKeon. I guess, I guess that's fair. I mean, the, the way it works now in our society, the common way is to pass on the, the male last name. So now you right. have this, I guess survival of both last names yeah it's this it's kind of weird matriarchal thing i'm bringing back i don't know <laughs> oh, whatever works i i yeah. you know i i'm a fan of people just naming themselves even uh, yeah say, absolutely I, yeah which uh, actually my daughter did i mean i think i told what? you this <laughs> so oh. <laughs> yeah in a weird kind of way okay yeah. So, I mean, do we want to get share this again, weird? Again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, this is the place to be as weird as you can be. <laughs> okay. So here's my super weird intuitive gift story. So uh, when I was 14 years old, I had barely just gotten my period. And this was one of those things, you know, it was like, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Like, I really, really wanted my period and was like really impatient for it to show up and really pissed off that like all my friends had it way before me. Uh, and so like, I, I felt like a really late bloomer. Finally got my period at age 14. And then like a week later, I got this dream. And in the dream, I saw this girl. She was maybe in her 20s. I wasn't really sure. But she looked a lot like me, but I could tell she wasn't me. And I was like, that's really strange. Who is that? And so she kept looking at me with this kind of weird look on her face. Uh, she was wearing a, a martial arts gi, I remember. And uh, like a white, you know, the, the little sort of robe that they wear. And she looks at me and she goes, Mom, it's me, Aria. <laughs> And I said, oh, um, hi. And she said, yeah, so this is 
probably going to freak you out, but I just need to tell you, you're going to have me someday. It's really important that you have me because I'm going to be important to a lot of people. Uh, so you just like not right away, but you need to have me at some point. It's important. <laughs> nice. And I was like, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> And uh, special. This reminds me of like that story of wasn't it in the Bible where Jesus came or some angel came to Mary and was like, "You're going to have a special child." Yes. This is your Jesus. Yeah, but it's (laughs) instead of an angel, she came to me. That's even better. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, I I chose you. You know, it was this very like that. That was the feeling that I got was like I picked you. So you know, please honor that. And I was like, okay. So, you know, I was terrified for a long time that I was going to get pregnant, like before I was ready, like terrified of that because she was going to just like jump in there (laughs) whenever she could, right? Didn't happen. Uh, She let me choose (laughs) when it was going to happen. And in fact, when I started trying to get pregnant, it was really difficult. And I was really scared that I was going to fail her. I had two... Yeah, I had two miscarriages and it took a really long time to get pregnant, uh, a couple of years of trying. Uh, and so I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm, I'm totally screwing this up. What kind <laughs> of worked? Like what made the switch that helped you get uh-huh. from that miscarriage state to the new state? Giving up. Nice. Surrender. It's, it's Yeah, surrender. Letting go. Letting go. I just said to myself, okay, uh, I'm, I'm going to stop trying. I'm going to stop trying. And if it happens, it happens. And if it doesn't, then she changed her mind or it wasn't meant to be or whatever it is. Because if she's supposed to be here, then she'll be here. And, you know, there's only so much you can do to, to like push fate. Yeah. <laughs> and then you end up with Oedipus Rex, right? <laughs> so for those who don't know the story of Oedipus Rex, uh, who are not drama geeks like me, basically uh, he was told by a soothsayer that he was going to kill his father and marry his mother. And he was like, no. And so he ran away and went far, far away thinking, okay, I'm far away from my parents. I'll never, you know, this will never happen. And then one day he gets into a fight with a random guy on the road, kills him, ends up marrying his widow. Guess what? That was his dad. That was his mom. So, but he didn't know them, didn't recognize them because he ran away. And so by running away from his fate, he ended up, smack in the middle of it. And that is so often what happens to us humans. Our hubris, our pride tells us you can control things. Nay, you can't. Nay, yeah. Can't. When it comes to fate, <laughs> that's such an interesting idea of this idea of, of predetermination, of predestination that we don't actually yeah. have control over our lives. And I've, I've found that the times I have the most control so to speak Mm -hmm. is the times when i release the most (laughs) yes yes i always tell people there's a difference between letting go and giving up and so i used the word give give up you know earlier but it's really more like letting go i got to this point where i just let go of the idea that i had to make it happen i didn't give up on her i knew that if she was going to come she was going to come and i would love her with my whole heart and I just let go of the need to control when and how it happened 
And that, of course, is when I got pregnant and it stuck. <laughs> wow, that's so beautiful. I feel like that's exactly what I'm going through in my life in general. With I have all these goals, all these exciting ideas have come to me. And mm-hmm. in order for them to happen, I know I have to let them go. And some of my goals I've purposely allowed to be too big for me yeah. to ever consider doing <laughs> on my own just so that I would be forced to let it go. Yeah. I like that though. (laughs) Let me tell you something. This is something I use a lot in my life. Um, I've kind of given up on like specific goals saying like, I want this specific thing to happen. Instead, what I have is core desired feelings. And I totally stole this idea from Danielle LaPlante, but uh, she's great. Uh, Basically, you just focus on creating the feelings that you want to have in your life. And then magically, when you feel more of those feelings, those things that you want come into your life. Mm, This reminds me of, um, I think it's Neville Goddard, Feel It Real, something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea of if you have a a goal you're working towards, you can't just see it in your mind's eye. You have to be in it, live it. You have to feel it. Yeah, exactly Mm -hmm. what you're saying. You have to feel it real. <laughs> yes, and if you look at the the Gnostic tradition, you know the the, mm. the uh, there <laughs> and the Essenes, like the Essene mirrors, all of this stuff. I I'm such a nerd. I've done a, like a ton of research on like historical religious blah blah blah. But what I find really interesting about that stuff is that they say that prayer, there's like a missing element to prayer that people don't know about, and it's that you have to feel it. You can't just say, hey, God, please make this thing happen for me. You have to imagine it and you have to feel it. The feeling has to be there or the universe doesn't understand that language. The universe speaks the language of of emotions. And the universe doesn't understand a negative. If you say, I don't want to feel like this anymore, it says, okay, you can feel like that some more. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I, I wonder if that's why there are so many I I don't want to I don't want to pick we'll just say religious people that turn gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean Okay, so talk about like out there beliefs. Uh, I've been doing a, a ton of research on, you know, the the Old Testament and the Sumerian stories that they're actually based on. And I am more and more convinced that the word Elohim, which has now been translated into God, is actually a group of beings that were probably just extraterrestrials, Uh, the Anunnaki or, you know, whatever you call them. Um, the more evidence I see, if you read, uh, the Barry's Bible, uh, (laughs) sorry, the Bible's buried secrets. Uh, it's actually a documentary series uh, that you can find on Netflix. Another one you can find on there is, um, unacknowledged, which is about, you know, the whole UFO cover up like today. There's like just an astonishing amount of evidence out there, an astonishing amount of evidence that has been covered up. Um, And so if you do just even like cursory research into these things, you start to go, oh, well, that makes way more sense. Like it's a historical document. If you look at the Bible and you read it from that uh, perspective of like these beings came to try to help, some of them tried to help us, some of them not so much. (laughs) 
Which makes perfect sense because like, you know, we're not, if we're not alone in the world or the universe as humans, then our vices are certainly not alone in the universe. Our, our short, you know, our failings and our shortcomings are certainly not alone in the universe. And so it makes perfect sense that there would be beings trying to harm us and trying to help us. Yeah. So while all of those religious traditions have wonderful tools and wonderful wisdom and knowledge to share, are they actually talking about the creator of the universe? I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. I think the creator is something much beyond all of that. All of that and is un, kind of fathomable. Yeah. And I find these books, some of them, I, I look at them in so many different ways. Um, aliens is, is certainly a, a, one of the major ways I look at them. When you, when you look at these stories of like Nephilim, have these cross species uh yes unions like a lot a lot of interesting stuff there but then you can also look at a lot of these as meta realities of stories that have mm-hmm. been you could say passed on orally long before they mm-hmm. were written and because they were passed on orally they they got the 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 important parts got compressed and yeah. the facts aren't really the important parts the important parts are the arch, the archetypes and yeah. so you have these archetypal stories that are true on multiple layers but what's interesting to me is if you look at the bible especially like the i think it's the gospel of john where it starts with the begets you know so and so begets so and so begets so and so it's such a long and specific list yeah, you're right. You know what I mean? Like, like someone specific. had to memorize, yeah, someone had to memorize that list before this was all written down. And this was passed on generation to generation to generation to generation. It was really, really important to them that people know that these were real people. This really happened. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So I completely agree that I think that, you know, mythology is like that, that condensed wisdom over, you know, all of these stories, over all of these generations. But I also think that there are stories there that are just like, this is a historical account. This stuff happened <laughs> and this is exactly how it happened, you know? Because yeah. otherwise, why would you go into all that detail about like these specific people and their lives if they were just metaphors? Yeah, no, I, I totally you know? agree. I think some of it is certainly very specific intentionally with the purpose of communicating an account of history. And yeah. one of the things that I've, I've always found interesting about Christian teachings and comparative religion in general is the different ways people talk about unknown or extraterrestrial or spiritual entities. And the fact mm-hmm. that just by flipping a few words, a lot of these entities could be the exact same one. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we weren't there, so we probably won't Never know unless they come back, you know, <laughs> to explain like, actually, this is what happened. But until then, it's like, you know, the wisdom and the tools are what we have to work with. Yeah. And you were, you were mentioning that your daughter was a, she came to you before in a spiritual form. What do you yeah. think happened to her? What do you think she was before she became your daughter? So she's actually told me. <laughs> so when she when she was barely like two and she was just learning to speak, she would uh, tell me really fascinating stories about, as she puts it, the planet that she came from before this one. Once she understood, once I explained to her that like, okay, so Earth uh, is this planet that we're on. 
And she was like, oh, okay, planet. Like, I, you know, I get it. Like, that's what a planet is. And she was like, I come from Aria. And I was like, oh, no, your name is Aria. She's like, no, no, no. I come from Aria. My planet is Aria. I come from Aria planet. And I was like, oh, okay. Did I misunderstand? And she's like, no, no, no. We call ourselves Aria too. When we're not on Aria, we're called Aria. And I was like, oh, uh, that makes wow, sense. this is, yeah. And I was like, wow, this is specific. Okay, go on. So of course now I'm asking all these questions, <laughs> like this is fascinating. And so she explained to me that on her planet, magic is like a science. It's, you know, it's a thing that people practice. Uh, it's like energy. Uh, it's, it's basically just like energy transfer, right? But they have figured out how to do it in a very real and specific way. But it's very draining, it takes a lot of, of course, energy out of you. And so there's this pool uh, that they go to and they have to sit with their feet in the pool basically all night long to regenerate <laughs> this, this energy or this power. And I was like, wow, like that sounds really frustrating. <laughs> like when you fall asleep or like be scared that you would like fall in the water. And she's like, nah, you just get used to it. <laughs> If you're enjoying this episode, please support the podcast by subscribing and leaving a review and a comment. Now back to the episode. So do they sleep sitting with their feet in the water? No, I think they just, they take like a, you know, all night long. They just kind of go and it sounded like it was more like a social event. Like everybody just kind of goes and like sits with their feet in the water and like you know holds hands or talks or whatever they do in this kind of group and just re like re reabsorbs their lost energy is what it sounded like to me wow there's a lot of <laughs> energy practices that i've heard about to regain energy but i've never heard any of them involving sitting with what with your feet in the water with your feet in the water and, and she said it was liquid she didn't say water particularly because this is like a different planet so god knows what they were actually like sticking their sticking their feet in. Right. Um, but the idea was she was saying that, you know, it's, and she didn't use these words. She was explaining that, you know, different things have a different feeling to them is what she kept saying. Um, like light and, uh, sound and these different things, like they have a different feeling to them. But I think what she was trying to say was vibration or like frequency. Right. Mm, that makes a lot. Yeah. 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 And so, and so she was explaining to me how to like use these different things. And I was like, do you think that you could do it here? And she's like, no. And that is so frustrating to me. Like when she was a baby, she was like, I could tell she was really frustrated with her body. <laughs> she was like, I can't make this thing do what I need it to do. And I thought it was just because she's a baby and she can't walk yet. and She can't talk yet. And she's like super frustrated with it. But she explained to me that no, she was trying to to use the energy. She was trying to do magic and she couldn't do it in this body. And she was really mad about it. <laughs> well, what do you think it is about the human body that is potentially limiting to magic? It's a good question. It's a good question. And I think actually we may have been limited on purpose. I mean, if you go, like you said, the, the stories of the Nephilim and the giants and all of that, like, I think in the past, perhaps humans did have much more power than they do. And they began to get corrupt and they began to, you know, do bad things with that power. And I think it was taken away on purpose. And I think that, again, like this is total speculation. I'm just, these are like wild theories that I'm throwing out here now. But I do think that 
the longer we remain at war with each other, the longer we keep trying to, you know, keep all the resources and, you know, win <laughs> at this kind of game. I loved the story that your mom told about like you telling her, hey, mom, the only way to win at Pac-Man is to stop playing Pac-Man, right? And that I think is the, the perfect metaphor actually for this life. Like as, as long as you keep playing that game of war, like we're never going to le- level up as a species, we can't. We're going to be stuck in the same game. And I think, you know, we, we've we been so trusting and kind of looking up to our government and our institutions to kind of help us and keep us safe. And we're realizing now that, no, a lot of those institutions are corrupt. And a lot of this stuff that we've trusted has not been there for our safety or our benefit. And we need to look beyond those structures now. And we need to look outside of even this world to try to find like where 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 should we be by now where could we be by now and what do we need to do to get there and i think more and more people are are realizing that I, everything you're saying makes complete sense to me I, when, <laughs> when it comes to oh man there, there's so many points to talk about there but when it comes to trusting our governments there is no reason to trust any other source more than yourself. If you're yeah. ever trusting anything more than yourself, at some point it's going to let you down. And, and our government does a lot of useful things for us that mm-hmm. help us survive in a, in a comfortable existence. But on the other hand, when you're seeing a lot of their control and fear tactics that they put out to create mass hysteria without naming anything specifically, um, there's a, a lot of things that they do that just create fear so that they can create excuses to take more of our power away, to, to further encroach on our rights, to further demand our money and, Absolutely. and, and our time and our energy. Yeah. So to keep us slaves. Back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, to keep us slaves. And you know, there are beyond the government, beyond what you see, this, the, the government is, 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 is a facade. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the real power we don't even see. It's buried very deep (laughs) and they want it to stay that way. And they work very hard to keep it that way. And so, you know, the, the, I really sadly believe that we are coming to a point in history where they're going to start doing things that you couldn't even imagine to try to keep people, you know, in their, in their place. There's going to be probably false flag operations where they fake Uh, you know, an extraterrestrial attack to get people afraid of the outside, anything but, you know, them, (laughs) the powers that be here. And, and people are going to be afraid and they are going to get on board with whatever needs to be done to fight this, you know, extraterrestrial threat. And that makes me so sad. It makes me so sad. Yeah, and I wonder sometimes, you know, like, what do you do about that? Like, how do you get people to to wake up and realize, but like, ah, it's so it's hard. the archetype. You have to get them to yeah. see the archetype. And the pattern is that the government creates fear, whether it's some outside source or some biological source or some extraterrestrial source. Well, it doesn't matter. They'll come up with a story that creates fear. And whenever you yeah. see fear, you know that that's not, that's not the truth. That's not the real story. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. 
everything you want is beyond your fear, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you just, you attract your vibration. So there's a, there's a part of me that looks at my world around me and sees a reflection of my internal world. And there's a part of me that's always aware of this. And I, I thank DMT for that. I, I thank meditation for that. And ultimately, I don't know the ultimate for that. Um, but, but, you know, there comes this, this point when I'm seeing all this fear around me and I can't help but think, what is the fear inside of me that's creating this hysteria in the world around me? What is this fear? What is it I'm holding on to that is creating this, this fake, uh, the hysteria, this fake pain that that we don't need to be that we don't need to be in. And when you mention there is this deep core that is hidden beneath the government, this deep root, I can't help but wonder: Is that core in me? Is there a deep seed here mm. in me? And when some people talk about these as being reptilian entities. Um, I can't help but think that this science talks about a reptilian brain within us. So Mm -hmm. there's parallels in these inner and outer worlds. Although I don't really believe anything to be true, I'm just looking at them to learn. Yeah. Interesting. The metaphor of that is really interesting. It's like, you know, what is it hooking into in all of us? We have that kind of common, what's the word I'm looking for? That uh, core story, you know, that we share as humans, the archetypal stories where it they can hook into this common unconscious understanding that we all have and manipulate us and we manipulate ourselves for them. <laughs> we do their work for them. That's the beauty of that system. Yeah. And the, the beauty of that explanation is that we can stop and we can take our power back. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there are little ways to do that. And I try to do them, you know, as much as I can. You can vote with your wallet. You can be really, really careful where your resources go. (laughs) Uh, You can really focus on love. You know, love is always the answer. And whenever you can spread kindness and spread love, like do it, do it every day, every way. You can do little things to help the environment. Like, you know, get rid of the grass in your yard and put clover or something that attracts bees and is more, you know, sustainable to your area. Little things like that, that, you know, it feels so overwhelming of like, how am I going to fix all this? And how am I going to save the earth? And how am I going to... And I think that if you can just focus on doing small things to push forward this agenda of hope and love and understanding and connection and community, uh, then you'll be more sane. (laughs) Yeah. You're reminding me of the, the infamous internet dads clean your room. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, and there's a lot of truth to, to just taking simple, small day-to-day actions that are within your control, either within your psyche or within your immediate environment and not not stressing about the world as a whole. I love the idea of clovers. Can you talk a bit more about this though? What Absolutely. Is, what is it that, what's wrong with grass and what are the other alternatives? So grass is basically a water guzzling uh, nightmare. Like it takes a lot of water to keep a grass, you know, a lawn nice and green and pretty. And so there's that. And then it's not providing anything in terms of food production or any, it's just pure aesthetics, right? 
But if you plant clover, for example, in your yard, it has a flower that attracts bees. And bees will then help your garden pollinate. And, you know, we, we need food to eat. And the bees provide pollination that makes food production possible. <laughs> and so uh, clover is just one example, though. There's a lot of things. If you look up, you know, your, your area and just find out what grows more naturally in that area so that you don't have to, you know, put a bunch of work and, and, and water it constantly. <laughs> uh, something that will survive well in your area. Um, dandelions. <laughs> dandelions. Dandelions are great. They're actually a really good, uh, those, those leaves, uh, yeah, they're a little bitter, but man, they're high in iron and they're really good for you. They're a superfood. Yeah, they're a superfood and they grow like weeds. So just let them grow. Also, I remember a long time ago, uh, at Qu- so I was telling you that I, I was raised Quaker, and at Quaker meeting, somebody stood up in uh, in meeting and and shared this, which I love. So to, for those of you who don't understand Quakerism, uh, we're not we don't all wear black and white anymore. That was a long time ago. Um, but what Quakers do is they sit in a room silently together. Uh, it's sort of like they're praying and meditating at the same time. Call it sort of like having a conversation with God. And when someone is moved by the spirit to speak, they stand up and they speak. And then everyone just kind of lets that like bathe them in light for a moment. And they let that settle. And then they might stand up and say something themselves or, or not. So this one woman stood up one day and I'll never forget this. I think I was like 13 maybe. And she said, so I spent all morning pulling dandelions out of my garden And then I was down to the last dandelion and I was looking at it and it just looked so bright and happy. And it gave me this feeling of joy just to look at it. And I thought, why am I pulling these out of my yard? Why am I doing this? It's because of this, you know, social pressure of other people telling me these are weeds, these are bad. And I was like, but I like them. I like them. And I thought, you know, if I was an alien and I landed on this planet today and I looked at a yard that was like, you know, just grass. And then I looked at another yard that had all these bright yellow dandelions all over it. I would think, wow, that person is really lucky. They've got this beautiful, happy, joyful, bright garden going on. And I thought, you know what? That's it. I'm not pulling any more dandelions out of my yard. Done. I'm never doing this again. I'm going to have to start planting them all over the, uh, no. the apartment grounds that I lived. I'm sure they'll <laughs> love that. They will love that. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, you know, you, you, you take these things for granted that this is how it's done. And, and we don't question those things anymore, but they're really not sustainable. And they're really not good for our, ourselves or our planet. And there are better ways to do things. And if you just take a little moment to educate yourself about what is a nice native plant in your area that would be a good ground cover for your yard and put that in there instead, you've automatically done something nice for the earth and for yourself. I love it. That, you know, I've never considered that in, I've never considered that my yard should not be grass. So <laughs> yeah. and the, the funny thing is they spray all these chemicals on the grass so much oh, yeah. that my dog won't even go on the grass around the apartment. Your so, dog's smart. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I listen to the dog because it yeah. knows than I do have, right? So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can we talk Absolutely. a bit more about your background? I want to. I want to piece your story together, Adrienne. <laughs> sure. You've. you've I, I'm imagining, from what I know about you so far, I'm imagining that you've grown up. Uh, Quaker, and you at some point when you were 12 and probably still Quaker, you had a, a vision of your daughter coming to you. And 14, you, at 14. Yeah. Oh, at 14, at 14. Yeah. And then you continued to be Quaker. And then at some point, you will have fallen off that bandwagon or maybe evolved your spirituality <laughs> or, or any of the, yeah. the metaphors that work for you. And then you will have become some somehow. Uh, extraterrestrial and crazy now. <laughs> <laughs> so let me tell you a little bit more. So actually, I was kind of a dual, I had a dual religion ship, I guess, as a kid. What? That's illegal. <laughs> because my mom, <laughs> my mom was an Episcopalian, still is. Um, can you, and can you she tell actually, me a bit what that is? I don't, I don't yes. really understand the word. So she has, uh, it's, it's also called the Church of England. Uh, she um, is really into the ritual of things. So Episcopalians, I like to call them Catholic light because it's, it's, they do have all the bells and smells like the Catholics do, you know, they do all the ritual around it. Um, but it's a Protestant belief system at its base. So it's very interesting. It's sort of like that one step out of Catholicism, that first step <laughs> into Protestantism. How would you say uh, it's different from the Catholicism? Um, well, pff, ah, gosh, that's a good question. My mom has a master's in divinity and could tell you way more about the actual theology differences. <laughs> what I can tell you is that growing up in it, um, I felt like... There were all these things that you had, you know, all these chants that you had to do and things like this. So we're in church, you know, and we're all kind of reading the Lord's Prayer in this kind of drone, you know, the way people do. And I was listening to this and I was like sort of standing outside of myself and hearing this. I was like eight, I think, when this happened. And I went, okay, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm guessing most of the people here don't actually know what they're talking about. They just say this because, like, that's what you do every Sunday. I don't think they know like what they're saying or believe any of this necessarily. And I did not like that. And I said, if there's a God, and I don't know if there is, but if there's a God, then the God that you've described in this Bible would not like this. <laughs> do you see what I'm, I'm so saying? so smart as a kid. Oh my God. It just felt really hypocritical. And I was like, I don't think that's what Jesus would want. Like, I don't think, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, to just mindlessly repeat this, this prayer without really recognizing, like, what it meant. And maybe it meant something to some of those people, like, deeply. You know, maybe they were really, like, hooked into that. And that, like, my mom really spoke to them, that ritual. But to me, it didn't. And it felt very empty and weird. And so I told my mom, I'm not going to church anymore. And she was upset, but, you know, it was what it was. And so I stopped going to Episcopal Church. I continued to go to Quaker meeting for a long time. But uh, as I told you, it was really hard for me, especially as a kid. Like, I, you know, I'm very, uh, I don't want to say ADHD, but like, you know, I'm distractible. <laughs> and I, my, I have a rich imagination. And so I, my mind would just go like 
all over the place while I'm trying to, you know, meditate or, you know, whatever it is that I was supposed to be doing. And I just, I got really frustrated with it and it was hard for me to sit still for that long. But what I discovered was that if I went for a walk, then somehow it worked. It was like I could go for a walk and have this conversation with the creator because I really did believe that I had a direct connection to the creator. I mean, we would all have to, right? If we were created by a creator, then it's like, you know, when you have a baby, like that baby has your DNA in it and vice versa. Like you leave that mark on each other. And so like the creator's in me and I am in the creator. That has to be true for me if this, if, if something created me. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And do you, do you find that that's still true now? Do you find that the creator is still an analogy that you feel comfortable with and you still have that relationship? Yeah. Because to me, again, it's a total mystery. Like what, what created all of this or how? We don't know right? We'll probably never know. And that's okay. Um, But I use that as a kind of shorthand for whatever that creation energy is, Um, which I will probably never know. You could call it the mystery, the great mystery, if you wanted to. Same thing to me. Uh, So (laughs) when I think about the, you know, when I, when I have this kind of these conversations with the creator, um, what worked best for me was to just go outside, be in nature, because of course, all of this was created by the creator as well. And so all of this has a direct, you know, pipeline to the creator, just like I do. All of this is just as sacred as me as it, and, and as anything else. The, the, you're saying everything, the plants and the, the nature around you is just as sacred as the church or as sacred as you. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, even yeah. more so in a way, because, you know, we built that church in our image of God, right? Like we created that God. That's the man-made, you know, the man-made God. <laughs> Whereas nature was here long before I got here and will be here long after. Maybe a meadow is a better church. For me, it was. For me, it was. The woods was my church. And so where I would go is I would go for these long hikes and these long walks in in the woods or in nature, or I would climb a mountain or I would, you know, I've been really blessed in my life to live in these really beautiful areas. I I grew up in Boulder and in the Seattle area. So just mountains and water and gorgeousness everywhere. And so I, I took advantage of that. You know, I would, every day I would try to get outside at least for a little bit. And around here, it can be hard because it rains a lot. <laughs> but I find that if you let that stop you, then you will not get outside for months. And so I just, you know, as the, the Scandinavians say, there's no such thing as bad weather, just in a, inadequate clothing. Mm. Now, are you the kind of person who uses the umbrella or do you just go and like immerse yourself in the rain? I just have a hat. I have a good wool hat. I love my wool hat. Keeps my head dry. (laughs) Yeah, because I mean, unless it's raining really, really hard, like an umbrella just is an annoyance after a while. I I don't find free. I'm free with an umbrella. I find that I get kind of restricted. I just want to like, like if I'm in nature, I just love to be able to have that full range of motion with my arms. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And so what I found more and more was that these, you know, little sort of walks in in nature were my religion, were my spirituality. And so I started calling myself a, a neo-pagan nice. because, you know, pagans worship the natural world. And so I felt like that that really resonated with me. And I would celebrate the solstices and the equinoxes and really pay attention to the movements of the planets and the stars. And uh, because this, you know, this is the universe. This is, you know, we are star stuff. That's what we are. We have the same stuff in us that is in all of the things. And so if you're not paying attention to what's going on out there in the universe, then I don't think you're understanding fully what's going on in here either and vice versa. And so there's this, when you look at nature, there's always these repeating patterns that get tiny, 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 and huge, 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 huge. And it's all the same stuff. And it's just repeating in these interesting patterns <laughs> in these interesting ways. And so like the smaller down you get or the bigger you get, you realize it's all the same stuff. It's creepy, eh? <laughs> Amazing. I, when, when you mentioned earlier that Arya said that her name and her planet were the same, mm-hmm. I just had this, this <laughs> image that came back to me. And this image comes to me every once in a while of the, everything that we call exterior actually being the interior. And yeah. everything that's in the interior is actually that massive universe that yeah. uh, that's just seems to be more real. And I wondered if, if her planet it could almost be considered like her dimension and she is her. Yeah. I, anyway, my mind was going off the deep end with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and again, our vocabulary is really inadequate to describe reality because we only know this. We only know this. And so the words that we have are here to help us be in this game and describe this game and understand this. We don't have the vocabulary to understand or talk about the universe or whatever's beyond the universe, right? Like (laughs) infinity, I don't know, you know, what all that is like, wow, how can you even wrap your brain around that? It seems to come to me as more impressions and pictures and I I can almost see how maybe an artist would have a better time explaining some of these concepts than (laughs) than a linguist. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's really true. And I think, you know, imagery is really helpful in that way. Some people are very, you know, verbal and some people are very visual. Um, But I think it helps to have both and to try to, you know, link these things in your mind. It's, it's interesting. Can we go back to neo-pagan? I really yeah. want to understand this because I'm getting this idea of you coming from a more structured environment that's more structured by humans and then going and looking at the natural structure of things and becoming in tune with that. Are, do you now find that your spirituality, did, did it have a distinct shift where you left some of the sacred teachings from the Quaker or Episcopalian, if I'm saying right, traditions, Mm -hmm. and you've now taken on like other words and other frameworks, or was it a gradual shift that just kind of flowed from one into the next very organically? I would say it was more of an organic flow and it took a long time. And 
I didn't kind of adopt that word neo-pagan uh, for a long time. Uh, that 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 came later. But it, and I didn't even think of myself as spiritual or religious during that time. I just thought of these as my sort of, you know, like as forest bathing, you know, <laughs> like that I was going out and just in this sort of uh, me time alone in the woods. But I always felt like I was communing with something beyond myself. I just didn't think of it in the same way. And then it, it occurred to me later that that's what it was. And I started to kind of call it that in retrospect. Mm, I love that honest self-reflection where you find a better word to describe your yeah. system than than you were used to using. That's yeah. I've noticed a, a trend of honesty and self-reflection throughout your whole story, Adrian. It's really good to see. <laughs> Thanks. I mean, I some might call it navel gazing. You know, I've, <laughs> I've spent a lot of my life just like fascinated by myself. But I think that you have to start there. You have to start with you because it's the only thing we really know. Yeah. Everything else is like, you know, we, we think we touch things. We don't, <laughs> you know, like right. the, 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 the stuff never actually touches. Like most of what is here is actually not here. It's actually empty <laughs> space. Like that's so hard to wrap your brain around, you know, but we can, the one thing we do have is our own mind. And the way that we process things. And I, I just read this book because uh, my husband really insisted that I read this book called As a Man Thinketh. And I was honestly a little annoyed by it when I first started reading it because I was like, okay, I'm not a man, but fine. <laughs> like, I get it, cultural context, blah, 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 whatever. But I, ca- I, started, I came into it honestly feeling a little bit like snarky. And as I read it, I was like, this is such a like masculine way of thinking about the world because he's talking about your garden and like cultivating your garden like that your mind is a garden and like you know you have to pull the weeds right and like cultivate the 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 good thoughts right and as I was reading this I was like wow I am so different I am like a gatherer I don't pull weeds I let them stay there I see them there and I go oh okay well that probably has a, a reason for being here Right now, I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to go over and like stare at it or like, you know, prick my finger on the, the thorns over and over again. But I'm going to see it there and then I'm going to go, okay, but I'm going to focus on this apple over here because that looks delicious. And I, it's a very different, I think, way of being, honestly. But it works much better for me because if I focus on trying to pull those weeds all the time from my mind, then I'm giving them too much focus. <laughs> mm, I'm seeing it because you're saying it's masculine. And the reason why it's masculine is because it has to do with order. And the order garden is inherently a walled environment that has yes. a a specific way it should be and a right. purpose. Whereas a more feminine way would be allowing it to be more natural and spontaneous and having it like there's still that that masculine element of you choosing, mm-hmm. but yeah. it's, it's not the primary uh, ground that you're walking on. You are inherently in chaos, taking 
with bits of order as as strikes your fancy, you could say. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just, I want to get that violence out of there. The other thing that I learned from the Quakers and has really like stuck with me my whole life, the Quakers are very, very anti-violence. <laughs> They're like strongly <laughs> anti-violence. So I, I grew up going to anti-war protests and I grew up, you know, uh, protesting against nuclear facilities and all of this stuff. And that, I, I really feel like that has shaped me probably more than anything in my life. It just recognizing that violence doesn't solve anything ever, ever. Yeah. <laughs> if you think it does, it's temporary at best. And I understand that sometimes, unfortunately, it's necessary to defend yourself because violence exists in the world. However, anytime that you are perpetuating violence, you're part of the problem. And so just recognizing that and going, okay, how can I stop the cycle? How can I not perpetuate violence? And if you look at that metaphor of, you know, the, the garden, it's violent. It's I'm going to rip out these things that don't belong here and throw them away. It's a mm -hmm. violent metaphor. And to me, it's like, why? Why not just let the garden, you know, grow like plant companion plants that work well together let the garden grow as it would like to grow. You know, if you see that something is taking over or being, you know, violent to the other plants, you know, then you can start to sort of like remove that. But at the same time, it's more like let's encourage growth of the things that we want here and worry less about the things that we don't want here and trust that the system, the whole system will take care of itself. There's a great uh, documentary. And of course, now I'm going to forget the name of it. I think it's the biggest little farm. That might be what it's called. Beautiful story of this couple in California who decides they want out of the rat race. They're going to buy this uh, organic farm and just, they're not going to do it the traditional way. They're not going to use any, you know, pesticides or anything like this. They're going to allow nature to kind of take its course. And they learn so many amazing, beautiful lessons through the course of this, that as soon as they try to get rid of something, things get thrown off. And then they realize why that thing was there in the first place. Like they start to get, they, they took all the ducks you know, and they put them in like a, an, an area to try to sort of keep them, you know, corralled. And the, another area got overrun with snails. And they realized, oh, the ducks were here to eat the snails. And when we let the ducks roam free, they do their job. And after, over time, they started to realize that it all takes care of itself if you just let it. Nature is amazing like that. But we've created these unsustainable, really difficult practices <laughs> that cost us so much energy and time and our environment and everything else when we could just be letting things happen on their own and plants would grow and we could just eat them. We could have the Garden of Eden, <laughs> you know? Let me, let me, like, there's so much going on in my head right now. Yeah. There's, there's so much of it where I can see your point. And there's another part of me that wants to press deeper into this. And I find that by, by providing some antagonizing statements, I'll be able sure. to, to conflict against it and we can get 
to maybe an even deeper truth. So how then would we ever have something like a bed or an airplane or a house? Like how would we ever create these, these forms of technology if we did not just completely force nature to bend to our will? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? And we wouldn't know unless we tried. We won't know what kind of technologies we could create that don't destroy the environment if we keep using the technologies that do, because we won't need them. And there has to come a point where you get make yourself uncomfortable again, where you make yourself, you know, you put yourself in that situation where you're like, I'm not going to rely on this technology that I've always relied on to keep me safe and to keep me comfortable. I'm going to make myself uncomfortable again. And that's what this couple did, which I thought was just absolutely amazing. And they went through that discomfort of realizing like, oh my gosh, there's this wolf that keeps keeping, you know, killing our cows. What do we do? You know, do we have to kill this wolf or is there another way? And working through that problem and figuring it out. What was your answer? That's that's super interesting. Maybe maybe you'll have to watch it. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. I'll watch it. We'll put a a link for everybody in the. It's really it's really worth watching. Yeah, it's really worth watching. It's a great it's great movie. But but I see what you're saying. I mean, the thing is, there has to be a balance. And you know, when I talk about the feminine, I don't mean women. I mean the feminine, like the divine feminine, and the divine masculine has been in in charge for a really long time, and that has thrown things off balance in a lot of ways. And so I'm not saying like, you know, girl power, like women need to take over. I'm saying, hey, we need to listen to that feminine energy and and find out what it's trying to tell us because we've just lost our balance and it's caused a lot of problems and it's going to continue to cause problems until we can bring that feminine energy back in and recognize the gift of just receptiveness, accepting what is letting things be as they are and loving them exactly as they are before we try to change them. (laughs) There needs to be an amount of understanding first where you can go and observe and really see what's there. And then after that, you can make the changes. So you're saying maybe the, the masculine energy's role comes in after taking a more feminine approach and observing first and really spending that time to understand the ecosystem, see how all the pieces fit together. Mm -hmm. And then we could develop sustainable solutions like the ones I've heard about in, um, Oh man, I've heard about some really strange ones in the Amazon where they've they found like this type of bacteria that they can put into dirt that makes infertile jungle soil fertile for growing stuff. Like I don't know, they found really interesting solutions. So I, I can see it being possible. I totally can. Yeah. And again, I mean, I'm not saying like I have the solution. I'm saying can we open our minds? Can we open our you know, the possibilities to just looking at what all there is instead of just saying, we have the answer. Well, we have an answer and it's also causing a lot of problems. Yeah. And this idea of resting in our discomfort, there's Mm -hmm. an interesting war against discomfort that we have in our society. I find it hilarious because discomfort (laughs) is growth. So it's really a war against growth, which means it's a a worshiping of stagnation. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That's exactly, that's exactly it. Thank you for articulating that for me. It is, it is a worship of trying to freeze something in time unnaturally 
<laughs> to say, you know, okay, this is, this is perfect. Let's try to like freeze it in time. And that is net, you never see that in nature. Nature is always changing. It's always growing. It's always going from one state to another. So I, I love the romantic nature of this, but I have been to India and in India, I mm-hmm. found that there were a lot of beautiful elements, but there's also an insane amount of chaos, you know, and, ah. and you, and the, the chaos is, you could say it's nice for a time, but when I got back home, it mm-hmm. was really nice to be able to be on the roads without my life being in danger. Absolutely. So it's, it's hard to find that balance between the, the masculine and feminine polarities of working with nature and, and then just, you know, enforcing our, our will, maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, again, it's more about focus. It's about, you know, what do what what creates order for us and what creates calm and what creates progress, you know, for us and focusing on those elements and and, you know, enhancing those as strengths. Whenever you put a no on something, a stop on something as a person. I think you, everybody finds when someone says, stop doing that, it's the hardest thing in the world. It's like, stop thinking about elephants. Stop it. Stop it. Don't think about that elephant. Cut it out. You can't do it. You can't do it. A negative doesn't work for us. And so you have to find the yes. You have to find the, what do we want to create? So I'm not saying, you know, chaos is beautiful. Let's always have chaos. Order is beautiful. Let's create order, but let's create it by recognizing, okay, here's what is, here's the chaos. What parts of that do we want to focus on and enhance to create order? Mm. I I think it's about taking a different approach to masculinity where rather than taking that negative answer all the time of, of that war against fighting the fighting against the things we don't want of really just channeling the positive side of focusing on the, the parts that we do want. Can you, can you take some time and share with me your thought of masculinity in the new age of femininity? Yeah. So a lot of people have talked about toxic masculinity and what that looks like, but what does positive masculinity look like? I've done a lot of thinking on this because again, to me, these are just divine elements that have nothing to do with like the junk that you were born with, right? Like it's not about like, you're a boy, I'm a girl and therefore we're different. It's like, no, there are these energies that are, you know, universal energies of masculinity and femininity and they're in all of us. And yes, there are hormones that bring up you know, more or less of them. But at the same time, like we all have all of these in, in, in ourselves and in our bodies. So the positive masculine to me is that forward driving force of saying, I want to focus on this. I want to create this. I want to make things happen. I want to progress and move forward and change and transform, right? Growth. Growth is masculine. Do you see what I'm saying? Whereas the feminine is that acceptance of what is, the receptiveness, and saying, oh, okay, well, this is here. How can we use this? Being resourceful and just not 
fighting everything <laughs> and saying, you know, oh, well, we have to rip this out of the root and get rid of that. Like, no, no, no. What could we use that for? Recognizing that everything has a purpose and a place. And these two things need each other desperately. You have to do and you have to be. You must have both. And I think the most beautiful partnerships are where you have those energies that are really well matched and really well combined. So you've been through, uh, well, at least one relationship. I don't know too much about about your story from that standpoint, but can you talk to the role of masculine and femininity within relationships, you've seen it done perhaps Mm -hmm. unsuccessfully. Maybe you've seen it done successfully. (laughs) What are the insights that you've had from your life so far on this? Absolutely. So when masculinity becomes toxic is when it tries to control others. Masculinity is powerful when it controls itself, when it's self-discipline. When it's saying, I'm going to, you know, focus all my energy on creating this thing or put all my energy into this strength and make something happen. I'm going to put my energy into protecting what is. I'm going to put my energy into recognizing the beauty of the things that are are less strong than I am and protecting them. Do you see what I mean? That to me is like positive masculine energy. When it goes wrong and when it kind of like starts to, to eat itself and eat the world is when it says, I need to impose this on the world around me. I need to impose this order that I believe is right and is good on the people in my life. And I need to control them and make sure that they do things the right way. And that always ends in disaster. Because you can't help but get corrupt in that. You can't help but start to manipulate and turn things to your advantage. That's the natural human way of things. You may have come into it feeling like, oh, I'm doing this for the good of everyone. I'm doing this because I have the right way and I have the truth and I have to help other people see the truth. And so therefore, I'm going to impose this structure on these people for their own good to help them. You may have gone in that with that, uh, you know, that mindset. But the bottom line is it will become corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's funny because there's there's all of these tendencies that I think we can all see in ourselves. And I'm noticing I, I grew up with with Christianity and a lot of structure, a lot of being told the right way to do things. And then mm-hmm. I became atheist and it was the same. There was a lot of, you have to think about it like this. You cannot think about outside of the box, you know? And so I had these two different paradigms that were so controlling in, in what I could and could not think and what I could and could not believe. So that now it's absolutely hilarious because now that I've, I feel like I've, I've traveled, I've learned a lot from all these different cultures. I've spent so much time experiencing all these different sacred uh, rituals from so many different planets, (laughs) from so many different uh, cultures rather (laughs) I I spent all this time uh, learning from all these different cultures around the world. I've, I've now got these ideas in my head that, ah, if everybody stopped being dogmatic, Mm -hmm. 
well, then that would make the world a better place. And so now I have a desire in me to get rid of dogma, which is inherently, which dogmatic. Is inherently dogmatic, right? So it's, it's funny. It's super funny. And then I'm learning that that balance can become an extreme. So yeah. forcing balance <laughs> creates an extremity. So then I'm, I'm just at this place where it's like, I don't even know anymore. Like I'm, I'm going to do what I can to share connectivity, but I need to have in me uh, a sense of, of balance for balancing. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's what we're here to do. We are in a position where we are sort of powerless over anything other than ourselves on purpose to learn how to kind of do that in the, in the microcosm. Do you see what I'm saying? Because if you look at relationships, in every relationship, you have this kind of balance of, you know, trying to... <laughs> And I say the masculine because it's it's that control aspect, but women absolutely do this. Again, they have masculine forces within them as well. And so when we come into a relationship, the automatic assumption is like, okay, I need to help this person change. Like I have to fix them. You come into a relationship thinking like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this person into my ideal person partner. And women are just as guilty of, of this as men are, right? We use manipulation. We use all these kinds of tactics to try to change people. Whereas love is acceptance and it's radical acceptance. It's saying, I see you exactly as you are and I love you right now, just like this. If you never change, I'm okay with that. And that creates a platform of safety from which someone can decide to make changes to their own life. It is because of that support and that unconditional love that they then are able to change themselves, ironically. But we cannot change anybody without their, not just consent, but their, it being their impetus. It has to come from them. Yeah, that balance is really challenging because a lot of the times we want to we want to help people and our yeah. desire to change people just comes from this idea of just trying to improve their yeah. life. <laughs> and you and the thing is you can you can force change on people, you can, but it will come at the cost of their affinity for you almost always. And it will come at the cost of their self-respect. Yeah, if you change somebody else, you rob them of the opportunity for them to heal themselves. Yeah, to, to have that autonomy over their own life and to go, hey, I think I want to change this. And once they make that decision, once they say, hey, I want to change, if they ask you for help, like, oh, there's all kinds of stuff you can do to help and support someone in their you know, desire to change. But again, it has to come from this place of, but I'm okay with you just as you are. And if you're not, you need to separate from that person. You need to, because you're just going to keep trying to change them and it's just going to frustrate both of you. Yeah, it, it's funny thinking, the just talking about chaos, <laughs> it's, it, there's, there's like this way I want things to be in my head and then my reality uh, doesn't have that same way. Like right now, I would love to be in the studio and I'm looking towards manifesting that. But, you know, I am early on and I, I'm just not, not there yet. And I have to enjoy the moments 
of not having that studio, of not having that space and, and mm. the, the pristine image that I would ideally like to have. So it's, it's hilarious releasing that. What, what are your yeah. thoughts on that and your journey? Because you also have a podcast that's, that I, th- I think is doing really well. You're in your second season. Oh man, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's like you have these visions of the future and you're like, you know, you 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 see them and you feel that and you're like, oh, that's going to be awesome. But then you also have to spend that time just being in gratitude for what is so much and just going like someday I'll look back on this and be like maybe that was the golden time do you know what I mean like we never know what's actually going to happen in the future we have this beautiful vision of like you know everything's going to get better and better and better in the future you don't actually know you know (laughs) what's going to happen in the future this could be like the best that it gets this could be the pinnacle. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, so you have to treat it that way. You have to treat every fucking day as if like, this is it. This is as good as it gets. <laughs> so enjoy the hell out of it. You, you can, it's funny because I, I totally agree with being present, but I never, ever want to have the belief that this is the best it gets. I always want to have the belief that I'm going <laughs> from one to another, and it keeps getting better and better and better. What are your thoughts on the balance of that? So to me, it's like there's hope, right? That like you can always hope and like create in your mind betterness, right? And hold that and hold that in your heart and like, you know, feel that. And you can make today better just by having that feeling of hope and what tomorrow might be like and what you could create. You see what I'm saying? But I think a lot of people spend their lives wishing and hoping and looking forward to this, you know, future that never quite comes because they're, they can't be happy with what is. And, you know, I really believe that the gifts that we're given, like if we don't appreciate them and we don't use them, we don't get more. It's like if you give someone a present, like let's say it took you a year you decided you were going to make something from scratch, like create something by hand to give to somebody. Maybe you wrote them a book. Maybe you, you know, built them a dresser. I don't know what it is, but you did something that you thought they were going to absolutely love. You put all this heart and soul into it. You gave it to them and they're like, oh, thanks. And then never used it and never really appreciated it. Would you ever want to make anything for them again? I can see the balance. I can see the balance of what you're saying. This idea of just constant gratitude, of being appreciative of the insane amounts of energy that come together to make even even the most mundane moments possible. Yes. To feel blessed for what is, you know, that I think is the biggest magic is just to recognize like the more you appreciate what you already have and focus on the parts of that that you want more of, right? Put your focus on, you know, you don't have to be like, oh, thank you, cancer. Like, I'm so glad you're here. No, you can focus on like, wow, I still have the use of my legs. Wow, I still like can sing. Wow, I have this, you know, this amazing support system, whatever it is that you want more of. That's where you really need to put your energy and focus is like being so grateful and making the best use of that stuff that you already have. And manifestation, like, yeah, it's super, 
super helpful and super magical and super useful. But I think that's the missing element that a lot of people don't see is like they just live in this fantasy world of like what I'm going to manifest and what I'm going to create. And it doesn't happen for them because they don't have gratitude for what is. And so the universe is going, well, I already gave you a, you know, a a wonderful life partner. I already gave you, you know, (laughs) all this stuff. And now you're complaining because you don't have enough money. Like, no, (laughs) go appreciate what you have and then come back. Yeah. I can see how gratitude is like a fast track to manifestation, which is really beautiful. Can, can you talk a bit on anger because i feel like mm. anger is almost the opposite of gratitude to some in in some ways what are your thoughts on anger and is gratitude a solution for it ooh that's a great question i had never thought of that but i think that yes i think absolutely gratitude and helping other people is a solution for anger because uh, anger always comes from judgment right it always comes from like you did this wrong thing and it hurt me and i'm angry about it And so there's always this kind of element of blame in anger that like this bad thing happened. It was unjust. It shouldn't have happened that way. And I'm angry about it. And that can be really useful information. That can be really important to recognize, hey, this shouldn't happen this way. And so now I have the responsibility of saying, well, how am I going to fix this? Like, what can I change in myself to make this not happen again? The problem is anger is usually externally focused and you want to blame something and you want to put it on like, well, they need to, f- to change it and they need to fix it. And you try to force change onto something outside of yourself saying, you know, we, we need to fix this. We need to change this rather than looking inward and going, well, what is it in me that is hooking into this? What is it in me that is, like you said, creating this violence like outside of myself <laughs> And yeah, you should fight against injustice. Like, absolutely. (laughs) Again, the balance of like doing and being. uh, That masculine energy of I want to get together with other people who agree with me and create something better. Like, yes, do that. Absolutely. (laughs) However, when you allow that anger to make you feel ungrateful, when you allow that anger to not let you appreciate what you do have, you do yourself and the universe a grave disservice. Yeah. Yeah. I can totally see that. There's so many times that I have let anger like sweep away all the the joy from my life by, by spending too long in that energy. And although it's possible to use that energy, well, it's, it's, it's often, you could say a thief <laughs> for, yeah. for the, joy, the joy that is at hand. Yeah, it's a joy thief. And I, I feel the reason why I thought to ask you about anger is because, well, your background is Irish. <laughs> Scottish. Oh, Scottish. Scottish. Oh, my God. Even, I, I, don't, I don't mean to make that distinction. Uh, but the I, I Celts, know. yeah. The Celts are, are uh, known for their fiery tempers, for sure. No, it, and I... I I just think that there's there's a lot there because you can see on the one hand they 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 fought bravely mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and and they have this fiery passion and this yes. massive amount of life energy uh, mm-hmm. and then on the other hand it can be so destructive when it's not used correctly so that there's so much beauty to to the amount of of life force that comes through in these moments. 
Yeah. So I'm a fire sign. I'm a Sagittarius and I've always really connected to fire. Like I love fire. I love watching it burn. I love feeding it. (laughs) And so I, I have a lot of fire in my life and in my personality and that can turn destructive very easily. You can burn down villages and then go, oh, sorry, I burned your village down. I was just you know, playing with this idea, uh, <laughs> it can get, a, get out of hand really, really quickly and easily. But without it, like you have no heat, you have no light, you have no power. And so it's very important to make peace with your fire. It's very important to recognize it there and go, oh, okay, that's trying to tell me something. Like that, that fire that I have here is trying to propel me forward to create something. I always say, if you don't have the fire for whatever it is that you're doing, it's probably going to kill you. It's probably going to kill you. It might kill you anyway, but at least you'll enjoy dying if you have the fire for it. <laughs> you know, you have to want something so much and have that fire that it propels you through the discomfort that it propels you through the fear, you know? And anger is fire. It is that same kind of energy as passion. And it can propel you forward to fix things and to do better and to create new wonderful things. The problem is when you let it be in its destructive phase for too long, where you just let it burn everything to the ground. Now, again, there is a place for that because New growth needs to happen, right? And sometimes you have to burn the forest so that the new trees have the nutrients to grow. And sometimes you do just need to destroy what is in order to make room for something new. Death is a part of life. You know, you can't have new births if there aren't deaths. The cycle continues. And so anger, I think, is, is a part of the, a very important part of that cycle. You just have to let it then burn itself out, and then go to the regrowth, to the what are we going to do now? Now that we've had that moment of anger, now that we had, you know, we burned that idea to the ground, like, no, I'm not doing that anymore. We've made this decision. What are we going to plant here to, to grow in its place? There's so much insight there. I know for myself, I, I have a lot of anger that comes up at points. And, and then I, I do tend to focus on what I can learn from the experience and how I can make sure I'm, I'm, I'm making the most of, of the anger that, that occurred and, and not making the pain that was caused be for nothing. So there's, there's a lot of value and a lot of beauty to that. I'm curious though, Adrienne, when you do your rituals as, as part of the equinoxes and solstices Mm -hmm. and uh, maybe for the moons, uh, and I don't know if you celebrate the solar cycle in any way, it's too frequent. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, in a way, like every morning, I'm like, yay, the sun's yeah. <laughs> gratitude. How do you use fire and, and what does your ritual look like in general? So fire comes up a lot, especially around uh, like Beltane, you know, that's when you have the sort of the bonfire and the, the sacred bonfire. I do it at the summer solstice too. I usually have a bonfire. Um, and again, I think it's part of it is just getting rid of the old like, you know, burning whatever isn't needed anymore. Often I will write down on a piece of paper things that I uh, can sacrifice or get rid of. Um, I say sacrifice because I like to think of it as like, the universe doesn't have the same judgments 
that we do around things. So if I say, um, I'm going to stop, uh, I'm going to stop hooking into this like sadness, right? I'm going to sacrifice my sadness. Now you may not think of that as a sacrifice to give up sadness, but it is something that you're giving up, that you're not going to dwell on this anymore, or you're not going to, you know, keep, keep circling that wound. Yeah. Anymore. I can totally see that. Just, and just so giving up, giving up like sadness, it like, it's one of those things where you feel like it's not a sacrifice because it's something that isn't valuable. Uh, you might see it that way. So you might think a sacrifice has to have this value to it, mm-hmm. but anything that you want to release, you can turn into a sacrifice and just the whole awareness on it and releasing of it. That's exactly right. Because everything does have value. And again, that judgment that you have on it, the universe doesn't have that judgment. And so I always try to bring something as a sacrifice when I do these rituals to say, okay, if I'm asking for something, I need to give something in return. If I'm asking to be successful in my business, I may have to sacrifice some of my time. I may have to sacrifice some of my energy. I may have to sacrifice some of my fear. <laughs> I, ha- I may have to sacrifice some of my comfort, right? In order to get this thing that I want and create this thing, you have to create it from something. Nothing comes from nothing. And so when I, whenever I come to the universe and say, okay, I'm like, we're here for the, the, the changing of the guard, right? Like the seasons are changing, Winter's over, now we're coming into spring. And so we have to burn off that kind of winter energy. And sometimes that is burning off indolence or laziness or, you know, like, because in the winter we have a tendency to kind of hibernate and that's natural and that's normal. And that's what humans do during the winter is that we like, we expend less energy. We want to sleep more. We want to eat more. We want to cozy up. You know, we want to be in our little homes and our, you know, with our little fires and stay, stay comfy and cozy during the winter. And that's natural. Well, when the spring comes, it's like, okay, get rid of that sleepiness, shake that off, get ready for the spring and the regrowth and the energy that's about to come so that we can really make great use of that. Mm, So you go through these cycles and you do a ritual that symbolizes the energies at play in that season. And is it more of an intuitive ritual or is there a lineage or tradition that you follow? Um, so my sister is actually, my sister Rebecca is the the kind of uh, archivist. <laughs> and so she's done a lot of the historical research around this stuff. And so she brings to it, she, you know, she's a witch and she has like her little apothecary and, you know, she has this little sort of leatherette case that she carries. It's got all the, the little, you know, vials of interesting stuff in there. And so she has these very set, like, you know, well, you need to do it this way. And here's the, here's the ritual. And I love that because she brings that structure to it. And I just come with my spontaneous intuitive, like, well, here's what I'm feeling right now. Like, let's, you know, write down on a piece of paper, the things that we're going to sacrifice and throw them into this fire. Okay, let's do that. You know, or calling out to the universe, just, you know, um, you just at the top of your lungs, you just sort of, you know, like your yawp <laughs> to the universe, yell out the feelings that you want to focus on in this next cycle. I just yeah. come up with stuff like that, just on the fly that just feels like intuitively like, Ooh, I'm feeling like this would work right now. 
So there's a balance there. It's hilarious because I've never seen the witch used as the orderly one as ever, ever being a symbol of order. Well, let me tell you, most of the witches I know, man, they are organized. They've got spells and you have to follow them in a certain way. And they've got all these little recipes for the different, you know, like oils. And uh, you know about this, you know, essential oils, like the, the, the recipes of how, you know, how many drops to how many drops and, and how these things go. Like it's actually very orderly and organized. Witches are healers at base and healers have to stay organized. They have to have the right recipe. They have to have things in the right, you know, um, balance or it doesn't work. Have you seen any of the, the witch friends that you have, uh, there must be an interesting story around this where you can share sort of a bit of what it's like to be in and around this witch type community. You know, it's interesting because I, you know, I have, I have my sister, but she's really more in the group. Like she goes out to these covens and she does these rituals and she goes to the, uh, you know, conventions and things like that and meet, meets all these, these other witches. And then just kind of tells me the stories. I don't really go to those things because I don't, connect as much to that, again, orderly, structured, healer energy. That's just, I'm more of an intuitive coach. I'm here to kind of help people find their own answer from within, rather than being like, here's a recipe for something that, you know, could heal you or fix you. Does that make sense? Yeah, that completely makes sense. So you're, you're looking at witches in a way that kind of reminds me of the way I look at religions. You, I guess maybe mm-hmm. it is a religion to some extent, the Wiccan religion. Yeah. yeah. Witchcraft is a craft, right? It's a science and an art and a religion. And <laughs> it's a bunch of different things, right? And so I think of myself uh, as a witch in the sort of intuitive spiritual sense of, you know, that uh, I, I see that power in myself and I recognize that I'm a channel for those energies and I can be a healer in that way, but I don't follow the, 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 the traditions as in such an orderly fashion as I think most witches who, who, who claim the title would. And that's really interesting. I think one of the other interesting things is that you and your sister both grew up Quaker. And so to make the switch from the Quaker tradition to the Wiccan tradition, it, it seems like, on one sense, it's a polar opposite, and yet in another sense, there's a lot of similarities. How mm-hmm. how has I'm just curious how the family takes that that type of a switch? Were they more open minded about it, or or was it something that was really hard for them to work through? My family is kind of all over the place, to be honest with you. Like my oldest sister is very. Like she's, she's more conservative. She goes to one of those huge mega churches, you know, um, more like, you know, charismatic Christian, like you were saying, yeah, um, she, in those mega churches. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she loves that and she's really into it. And her church seems really cool. You know, they have like a wall of uh, all the tattoos for, you know, of the people who go to the church and it makes this giant, beautiful pattern and mandala yeah. and like, yeah, it's, it's a cool place. Like I totally respect and like, you know, I, I, I get it and I dig it. It's, she's got, they've got the, you know, so many resources for that church. Like they do all these great mission trips and all this like, you know, helpful stuff in the world. They do all these, you know, this charity and they've got like 
huge classrooms for all the different ages of, you know, age groups of kids where they can like play and learn. And it's like, yeah, of course I would want to go there for an hour and like have my kid have a great time while I go and like get, you know, spiritually fed. Like as a system, like they've got it down. (laughs) They have figured out what people's spiritual needs are and like delivered. So I totally respect that. Totally get it. Um, So that's, that's where she's at. And then there's, you know, me and my other sister where we're just doing this weird sort of like pagan, (laughs) neo-pagan spiritual ritual thing. Uh, And I think my parents are very like, especially my dad, you know, he's the Quaker. And so he's very just like, Hey, whatever works for you, you know, you have a direct connection to the creator. So like, whatever you, whatever that, however that manifests for you, then that's probably the right answer. That's super open-minded. Are are Quakers generally open-minded in that way? So liberal Quakers are. And again, there's like, like with all religious, you know, sects, there's different tribes and different groups. The, the East coast Quakers tend to be a lot more conservative, tend to be a lot more traditionalist. The West Coast uh, Quakers are very liberal, very open-minded, very, you know, like peace-nicky, hippie, happy-lovey types. So it's, it depends on who you're asking. (laughs) Well, that's super, that's super exciting to see because I, I really like, exploring a lot of these traditions and the one thing that i find most challenging is as i said earlier that dogmatic element so to see people have these types of of christian lineages and be really open-minded and have really interesting activations like you're talking about with that standing up and speaking intuitively and every and then going back and meditating as a group it seems like a really a really cool foundation for you to start your spirituality off at. Yeah. And it's, it can be really powerful, but it can also, like I said, as a kid, I don't think you really get it fully. Um, and so I, if it were me, actually, I would, you know, and they do, they take the kids out like after a few minutes, like, you know, they kind of have the the group thing and then they take the kids out and do what we call first day school. It's like Sunday school, you know, um, and and so I think that's good. I think you you really you can't just sit a kid in a room for an hour and expect them to like get something out of that at that age. I think there's a certain point at which you kind of go, hey, I think I'm ready now. And it just kind of happens naturally that you then just are ready to like sit in there and like stay for the whole hour and have that be a powerful thing. The other thing about Quakers is that they do everything by consensus. They can't, they have, there's no majority rule because that's a violence to them that somebody imposed their will on somebody else just because they had more numbers. And so everything has to be in agreement and it has to be consensus. And let me tell you, that makes it very, very difficult to accomplish anything. It can take years. Like we wanted to build uh, an extension onto the Quaker meeting house and it took three years to come to consensus about whether or not we could do that. So do you think that that's maybe pathological to some extent? Like, like I'm not saying it in a, in a mean way. I'm just saying like, it doesn't seem functional. So I think there's a certain amount of overbearingness and force that needs to, that needs to occur. Yeah. And again, balance, you know, there needs to be balance in everything. Right. And so the Quakers, you know, 
bless them. They have some amazing, wonderful qualities, and they also have some qualities that drive me crazy. Right. And that's why I created my own thing. <laughs> Right. Oh, that's, that's so funny. Can you, can you talk about how your spirituality influences your work? Because your work is also a super interesting job. You take stories and from brands and you, you help them find themselves and you help people Mm -hmm. find out the story of their business. And I guess even probably personalities figure out their own stories. So how does your spirituality work into all of that storytelling that you do for work? Yeah, absolutely. So what my spirituality has done for me is to help me recognize that the only authority that I can actually trust is my intuition, because that is my connection to the creator. And so that is the only truth that I can even come close to touching in this reality. So when I help people, I try to really help them find that inner voice, that intuitive voice that speaks to them and says, this is me, this is my story, this is who I am, which we are, which we spend our whole lives trying to hide and cover up and conform to something that will be palatable and acceptable to the rest of the world, right? And I'm trying to help people recognize that that is your gift, that little voice that you have in there that talks to you, even if it's your itty bitty shitty committee sometimes and tries to, <laughs> you know, speak in the voice of the ego, that is you. And it is what makes you unique. And it's what makes other people trust and know and like you. So the more authentic you can be, and the more that, you know, the, the deeper you can get into that voice and kind of pull that out and get it outside of you and get that message outside of you of this is what I believe. And this is what I know to be true. And this is what I feel. Then the more people will be attracted to you and want to work with you and want to, you know, collaborate with you and all the good stuff. I did an exercise with you on your podcast and, mm-hmm. and you can you can go to it if you're listening to check out the That's Allowed podcast and you can look up the Chris Owl episode. I'm not, I'm not sure if if it's called Chris Owl episode. Maybe you can remind people. Your, your name is on there, Chris Owl. Okay. Um, yeah. And I, I, I'm trying to remember now what title I gave it because I just gave it a title, but it's okay. That's allowed. Yeah. Chris Owl. And then you can go and she, she guides me through this exercise where, where I discover my own way of visualizing my core beliefs. And it's different when it's a picture because a picture is deeper than words. So to yeah. actually visualize it and it's, it's not even just a solid picture. It's like an animation across time. And it's, it's really beautiful to see. So if, if you want to check that out, you'll get a good idea of what Adrian can help you with for, for your business or even for yourself. And even if you're not looking at something professionally, you can get a sense of just who you are by just doing the exercise on your own. It's a great idea to do. So certainly try it. Is there any other little exercises or tidbits that you would recommend people do to help find their story, Adrienne? Gosh, so many. So, I mean, that's what my podcast is. It's just me teaching people these little tips and tricks uh, for for their particular story to try to get it out. Um, I have, these are my standard questions that I always ask, and you can just ask yourself these questions, which is, what is the story I'm not telling? That's where we start. So, because the stories that are the most kind of 
uh, meaningful often are the stories that we're not telling and not necessarily our shame story of like, I'm not telling this because it's embarrassing or because I feel badly about it or I need to confess this. It's that story that you just feel like maybe this is a little too out there for people or maybe if I say this, they won't like me as much because they'll think I'm weird or different. It's that story. So when you can get to that story of like, what is the story that you're not telling? Then you can get to the next question, which is, where does it begin? And often it begins in pain. It begins in some kind of pain that you had that you were like, why am I experiencing this pain? Why does this keep coming up? Why is this pattern playing out over and over again in my life? What is this thing? And you go through all these machinations to try to get away from it, right? To try to avoid the pain, to try to numb the pain, to try to push the pain down. And then something happens, the climax of your story, your rock bottom or whatever that is, right? Where... You can't avoid it anymore. It becomes intolerable and you have to face this thing. And it's like you're, you know, you, you set out on your hero's journey. You get that invitation to go on your hero's journey and you finally have that courage and you go, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to face my fear. I'm going to feel my feeling, whatever it is, I'm going to be in it. And then you level up and that's your resolution. And so the next question is what's blocking you? Like, what has been holding you back from being able to tell this story? And then when you realize, you know, what that story is, how did it change you? How did it help you become the person that you are now? Because especially in business, if you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to come up with the, your brand story, and I believe that your, your story is your brand story, always. Like, your company is you, <laughs> And if the more those things can seamlessly go together, the easier your life will be and the better it will be for everyone who works with you. And so once you recognize that this pain that I came through is the pain that I'm trying to save other people from with this business that I have, I am trying to help people through that pain because I am on this side of it now and I know how to do that. And so every product, every brand, that's just what it's about, is getting people through that pain into something better. And so once you recognize it, that's your main sort of message or takeaway for this story, is like, what will get you through that pain? What are the tools that I can offer to you to help get you through that pain? And so that's, that's a story right there. That's your brand. That's the whole thing. <laughs> I've never looked at at a at a company as having pain before, but I, I can I, I see now because it's it's a even if there's multiple people that create a company mm -hmm. together, there's like a co-creation of everybody's pain that is that is also everybody's growth that has yeah. brought them together to help create this new entity, this new corporate That's entity. Right. And the values that that company holds, it becomes a, you know, a, a personality unto itself. That brand has values and it has, you know, it, it wants to help people. <laughs> and if it doesn't, then why does it exist? Like if you have a brand that's just there to make money, that ain't it, kid. You're meant for something better than that. You're meant for something better. You have a gift. Figure out what that gift is. And often that is that story that you're not telling is what your true gift is that you have avoided and you have run away from and you have pushed it down and you have hidden your, you know, like I, I, I love to use this analogy. This is from Jessica Butts. 
She says, stop hiding your brownies. People make these, you know, this beautiful plate of, of delicious brownies. And then they're like, oh, maybe my brownies aren't good enough. People won't like them. They won't, you know, taste good enough. And so you hide them. You hide your best stuff because you think it's not good enough. Stop hiding your brownies. Put them out for people to enjoy. That's so like, funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally see that. For me, I've I've studied marketing and I left the corporate world because I wanted to do something I believed in. I wanted to work in companies I believed in. And now I'm working in two natural health companies and I don't want to to stay doing that and I, I'm happy to support it and I'm, I really believe in the products and I, I have influential positions in these companies, but I, I don't want to, I don't want that to be it because I feel there's something deeper of myself I need to give. And that's why I've created my brand. And that's why I've created this podcast is because this is really what excites me having these very real conversations about the ways that we view the world. So I can totally relate to what you're saying about that part of you that's being hidden, that part of you that's being, you could say self-suppressed is mm -hmm. the part of you that holds your greatest truth, your greatest joy and your greatest passion for, for even your work. And thank you for doing this, by the way, because so many of us don't take the time to think about what we believe. It colors everything in our lives. And yet it's a filter that we look through and so we don't notice it. So to stop and have that moment of someone asking you, what do you believe? Is like, wow, I, I honestly hadn't really given it much thought. And then you start to think about it and you go, oh, I believe this and I believe this and I value this. And that is where you start to realize like, oh, this is who I am. Yeah. It seems like if, if I had to try to describe your beliefs now, it seems like you believe in the natural rhythm of things and you believe that humans function best, yourself included, when we can relax into the swing of things instead of trying to fight the current constantly. And so it seems like all of your, your rituals and your spiritual practice all has to do with just reminding yourself of the flow of, of our world and and how we can most take advantage of, of the, the positives of each of the seasons or the positives of the moon cycle or the sun cycle. Absolutely. And thank you for articulating that. I will have to use that. My, my spirituality, my beliefs are flow. <laughs> flow, flow with the natural flow, rhythm flow. of things. Yeah, flow with the natural rhythm of things. And, you know, you don't have to just accept everything as it is, obviously, like you can, you can change your attitude around things. You can change your beliefs about things. You can create new things to help, you know, what is be more wonderful. <laughs> Absolutely. But the more of your life you spend trying to swim against the current and go in a direction that, you know, life just doesn't want you to go <laughs> like, what a waste. What a waste of your time and energy. Yeah. You know, when you could have been enjoying the ride. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can totally see that. I'm curious, what have you taken 
for your personal life from all of these cycles. So the, the cycles I'm aware of that are easy mm-hmm. to notice are the solar cycle, the lunar cycle, mm-hmm. and then the annual cycle through the seasons. And I know there's other cycles. There's there's internal cycles and then there's massive cycles across aeons. But, but of those three cycles in particular or any other that you regularly work with, are there really easy takeaways that we can apply to our life from from those cycles that you've had breakthroughs with? Absolutely. So in all of these cycles, you'll notice there is the ramp up that takes more energy and more effort, right? It's almost like uh, on an elliptical machine, you know, or like a, a tank where it's like <laughs> kind of going around and around. So it's like, you know, there's that climbing period where you're like, oh, oh, scrabbling, scrabbling, scrabbling. You're working hard. You're in discomfort. You're working through your fears. You're getting this stuff. And then you kind of get to this plateau. And you can sort of enjoy that ride for a while where you're just like reaping the benefits and enjoying this new perspective on things. And then you start to feel that pull again of growth again. And you want to start to scrabble up again, right? And all of that is important and all of that is part of the flow. And there are times in that cycle where you're resting, where you're just like, it's important to rest so that you will have that energy to scrabble again when that comes at you. And I think it's hard for us to rest. It's hard for us to recognize like, oh, this is a time when I'm just supposed to be sitting with what is and resting and meditating on what has happened so that I'm ready for the next growth cycle when it comes. Instead of trying to push and force and say, what can I be doing better? What can I be doing more? What can I be fixing in myself right now? Letting that natural rhythm just be there, trusting that when that growth period comes, oh, it'll come. You, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to push the world for the sun to come up. When the spring comes, the grass grows by itself. Or the dandelions in your case. Or the clover. Or the clover, yeah. Or the clover. <laughs> when the spring comes, the clover grows by itself. Yeah, to me of just working with the, with the natural cycle and not trying to fight it i've noticed for myself i i have all these epic goals that that i i've been given i all i like to say i like to frame it that way i've been given the goals for myself because i don't know where else they come from um so I, I have these goals and they're big goals and i want to achieve them but I can't do it on my own. So there's this funny balance of me pushing and then me relaxing. Mm-hmm. And it, sometimes it happens 20 times in one day where I'll start to push. I'll be like, oh, too much. And I'll relax. I'll be like, oh, too relaxed. <laughs> it's this really funny push and pull. How do you find balance between those two extremes moment by moment? Oh, I fail a lot. But <laughs> I think what you do is you look at it like, you know, that goal that big, hairy, audacious goal is like the sun, right? And you're a flower and you're growing up towards the sun. But as in nature, like it's not always a a nice straight path, right? Sometimes you have to grow around a rock and sometimes you have to, you know, go around a tree and sometimes you, you know, go back down to come back up again. Uh, And that's all part of it. And those little cycles of going around and around are getting you eventually closer to where you need to be. And you have to kind of trust in that flow and just recognize that if every day you're taking the next right step, if every day you're directionally correct, (laughs) 
you know, just going like in the right general direction of where you're trying to get and trust that process, that to me is the balance. That you always have that, you know, long-term goal, but all you need to look at right now is like the headlights in front of you. Just look at what's right in front of you because otherwise you can't see the pattern from where you're at. You're inside it and you can't control it the way you want to control it. So the more you try, like the more you just get knotted up in yourself and get further away from that goal. We can take those moments uh, to, to have faith. You could say that the whole picture is being worked out on our behalf. Mm-hmm. And it's so, so helpful in my life to be able to just rest in that knowing that knowing that the yeah. vision that I have, although I'm seeing it and although I'm experiencing it as my vision and it feels like I've come up with it, I, ultimately did not. And ultimately you could say it's just the vision that's there for me to do. Um, And so it's not really my responsibility in some ways to strive to make it happen. I just need to take that next step. Like you're saying, look at those taillights Mm -hmm. in front of me. However, I think there are some times where we do get those big pictures and we can see the whole pattern fit together. Have Mm -hmm. you had any of those moments? I know for me, it's been a lot of these intense spiritual experiences have created these big archetypal pattern moments where I'm like, whoa, that's what's happening. That's insane. Have you, have you had any sort of experiences like that with uh, neo-paganism or any of the other traditions you've been in? Sure. But it's been more like, um, you know, epiphanies, like lightning bolt, like, oh, images or ideas that just come to me. And it's like, oh my gosh, why didn't I see that? You know, all this time, it's like you kick yourself immediately because you're like, that was so obvious in retrospect, but that, that window wasn't ready to open. You know, like it opens when it's, when it's time for it to open. I'll tell you when I met my uh, husband, David, we actually, uh, no, but he's got his own cool spiritual stuff going on, but yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So he, when I, when we knew each other for like five years peripherally and never really saw each other, like we were in the same circles but never really connected. And it was almost like he was literally under a blanket. Like I thought he looked different than he actually looks. Like I genuinely had a vision of him in my mind that was completely different than the person he is. It was like he was in a shadow and I could not see him. And then one day it was like everything lined up perfectly. We were both single (laughs) and it was like the universe just went, click today. And we looked at each other and we saw into each other. It's the only way I can describe it. It was like, I saw all the way into his soul and I saw like the God in him. And I was like, Whoa, where did you come from? (laughs) And he had the same experience where he was like, hello, I love you. And he literally, it was that insane. Like he just looked at me and he was like, I, I love you. I love you. And I was like, yeah, like, let's do this. It was that fast. Whoa. Where where were you? We were at a friend's house and we had been at the same freaking boxing day party every year for the last, you know, what, five years. He was always in the kitchen, like, you know, cleaning up. And I was always in the, 
you know, dining room, like socializing. I, one year I actually got up the balls to like talk to him <laughs> and I tried to start a conversation about salad, which was like the stupidest conversation I could have brought up and he didn't have anything to add. And so it went absolutely nowhere. <laughs> And I was like, all right, I guess he's not that into me, like whatever. But yeah, again, like, like salad. <laughs> yeah, like, but again, it was like, I couldn't even see him and he couldn't talk to me. It was like, there was this barrier there. And then all of a sudden it was lifted and it was, it really, it felt to both of us like, like the pins of a lock finally falling into place and a door opening. And we could see into each other and see our future together instantly that fast and i think a lot of things happen like that in life that you just you're waiting for the right ingredient or you're waiting for the right time and then when it happens it's just like boom 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 boom. it just takes off suddenly and you can't as much as you would like to you can't force that you can't make it happen until it's ready to happen you can prepare yourself and you know we both did a lot of work on ourselves in those five years to prepare ourselves for that moment so that we were ready to have this really strong partnership with each other. We would not, it would not have worked at all if it had, if that had like happened the first day we met, if we had had that same like lightning bolt connection, it would have been a mess. It would have been a disaster because neither of us was ready. That's phenomenal. This story, the story is really interesting. For me, it was, it was kind of similar in some ways where I just heard Karen laughing. Karen, Karen's my partner now. Mm-hmm. Um, I just heard her laughing in the front of the classroom uh, back when we were in school. I was like, yeah, I, like, I really like her. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like instant attraction. It wasn't to the yeah. same extent where you saw the, my whole life together. I didn't see my whole life together like you did. But I can see what you mean about preparing yourself and just having things fall into place. Yeah. And I also, you know, some of my friends are, it's like, I, I hang out with some really cool people. Um, some of my friends are psychic and I've had them have these kind of sudden visions for and with me that made me go, Oh, like, Oh, that's what that is. You know? So we've um, told you things that were going to happen. Not necessarily that were going to happen. It was like they had, they understood a pattern or a metaphor for me that just suddenly was like, Oh, I get it now. Just help me with an example, like an epiphany of growth. Yes. So I was, I was with this guy, uh, for most of those five years that I was (laughs) not with David, um, who was totally wrong for me, but I was so attracted to him and I was just desperate to like make this work. You know, it was like one of those things where I thought if I worked really hard, I could fix it, you know? And I was like, so wrong, but so stubborn, so stubborn. I like to say, you know, I, uh, my first husband was really abusive and I, it was like, I got stung by a bee. And so I decided to become a beekeeper so that I could control the bees. And so I kept finding this certain type of narcissistic man where I was like, I'm going to fix this. <laughs> I'm going to find this formula and make him love me. And wow, all I did was become allergic to bee stings because <laughs> I got stung so many times. I, I had a similar experience where I was trying to always find girls who didn't want to have a relationship mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would make them have a relationship. That was right? my, my desire. And it, it, it never worked until, until actually with Karen, uh, it actually worked. And it, <laughs> I, I was like, whoa, 
it worked. I was so confused. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So, so I was with this guy and she, you know, kept sort of looking at this and scratching her head. Like, what is she doing with this guy? Like, it's so obvious to everyone around her that like he treats her like crap and like, this is not going to go anywhere. Right. But she finally said to me, she was sitting next to me and all of a sudden she goes, oh, oh yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll tell her. And I was like, who are you talking to? She's like, she's like, one of my spirit guides just gave me a message for you. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. (laughs) Like, what is it? And she's like, so Sean is a rocket ship. He's a rocket ship and you are on top of the rocket ship. You're never going to get inside. You're going to keep trying to get inside. Um, but the rocket ship's going to shoot you up to where you need to be. But you need to get off before you go through, you know, and burn up. You need to get off before you burn up. Because once you get to where you need to be, you'll know. And then you need to get off the ride. Because otherwise you'll burn up. Because you're never going to get inside. And I was like, that makes so much sense all of a sudden. That it was like, this was what I needed to do for myself to get to the place where I was ready for the relationship that I actually needed that was going to work for me. But I had to sort of like go through this crucible (laughs) to become the person that I wanted to be in order to be the right person for the person that I was waiting for. And so I finally, it, it happened. I got to this point where I was like, oh, I have to get off this ride now. Yeah, but what was it specifically there? What did you learn about yourself specifically that was like, ah, I no longer need to go after this guy. Now I can get off. It was the recognition that like, okay, so you're never going to get inside. Like that's <laughs> like, you're trying and trying and trying. You're trying to get in here. You're never going to get inside and it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with the rocket ship and the way it's built. It has no door. Do you see what I mean? And so it was that recognition of like, oh, it's not me. It's him. He's, he's a rocket. Like that's the way he's built, right? And maybe someday he'll figure it out and open the door. <laughs> but it's, it's, that's not for me to decide. And it's not about me. And so it's fine for me to take this ride and enjoy the ride. And I can like enjoy it fully and be like, oh, I'm taking this ride right now and I've chosen to do this and that's okay. And I'm going to enjoy the hell out of this ride. And then I'm going to get to the point where I know it's time to get off. And I did. And that thing happened where I was just like, oh, no, I'm actually done with this now. And I can get off this ride because I don't want to burn up. And I'm starting to feel that heat and I'm starting to feel that like this is going to destroy me and I'm not going to let it. And I got off the ride. It was hard <laughs> and scary, but I got off the ride and it was right after that, that things happened with David right after that. Wow. So yeah. you, you releasing the need to fix and control mm-hmm. the rocket ship archetype man, <laughs> right? The phallus, the flying phallus, <laughs> the giant dick. <laughs> yeah. The giant dick archetype, right? Like how much more obvious can you be? Elon Musk. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just recognizing, Oh, it just is what it is. Like that energy just is what it is. And it doesn't need me to fix it. It's happy the way it is, or it's not, and it'll fix itself, but that's not my business. Yeah. Just allowing people to be in pain from your perspective or allowing people to be imperfect from your perspective is, is really something I've been working on too. And, and the fact that you were able to get past that seems to be 
that key moment where you were able to appreciate your now husband? Yes. Yes. And to appreciate, I mean, again, you know, Sean made him look good in so many ways. You know, it was like coming off of that ride was like, wow, you're nice to me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like you respect me as a person. What? You know? And so it made his job so easy just in terms of all he had to do was love me. All he had to do was love me and respect me and like treat me well. And I was like, I'm yours. I will do anything. Like, what do you want? And all he wanted was for me to love him. And I was like, well, that's easy, you know? And so it's been this, I never realized that relationships could be easy. I really didn't. I thought it was always going to be struggle. It was always going to be hard. There was always going to be fighting. There was always going to be like, you know, compromise and, and, and working it out. No, no. This guy and I, like, we hardly ever even argue. And if we do, it's usually about something external. And then we realize we're bickering at each other about something that has nothing to do with us. And then we rally as a team and we work on that problem together. It's amazing. It is flow. And again, all I have to do is love him and my life is great. Yeah. Around, you know, around my love life. And like, I, I genuinely did not know that was possible. I genuinely didn't know that was possible. And it was because I had to make peace with myself and recognize that it was me I was trying to fix this whole time. It was me who was my knight in shining armor. It was me who was the authority over myself. And I had to let myself be that authority and recognize that my truth is for me and my intuition is right for me. And until I could do that and trust myself, I couldn't be trustworthy in any relationship. I could imagine that before that point, it would have been maybe a shit show if you had been with him because you would have been trying to change oh, yeah. him too much and, and not oh, allowing him to it would, 100% it would have been a shit show. First of all, I was identifying as polyamorous at that time, which is oh. completely like not in his worldview at all. He would have been totally freaked out and like grossed out by that. Um, and I just wasn't recognizing that one person could actually like be your partner and fulfill all your needs. I didn't trust that because it had never happened to me before. I had never been able to rely on one person completely and have them support me 100% and be loyal to me. I never had that experience, you know, from birth basically. (laughs) So I had these deep wounds around abandonment and, you know, not being good enough and not being likable and not being lovable. And so I had to heal those before I was ready to accept that kind of unconditional love and to love someone unconditionally where he was at. That's, that's so huge. I've, I've totally been through that in my own life and I'm still working through it to many extents because the examples that we have aren't ever the example that we need, or maybe in very rare cases for some people, but usually we want to have a, a next level of abundance over what our previous ancestors have had. Yeah. And so we need to do that work. We need to do that healing of the generational wounds and reinvent the experience in our life if we're willing to, to be up for that challenge. Yeah. We cannot hate ourselves into loving ourselves. We can't do that. You have to 
start from where you are and you have to love you unconditionally right where you are. And that is so much more challenging than we think it's going to be. Yeah, that's something I'm, I'm even working through now. It's, it's just this accepting of my, my current state, my current state mentally, my current state uh, emotionally and physically where I am in the, in the world. And it's, it's interesting because I never used to have a problem with, with that. I was always really able to accept it, but I, I didn't have any vision earlier. So I didn't really have anything to aspire to. But now when I see my current state in contrast with my ideal future state that I'm building, the it's so easy to allow myself to become unhappy with my current self and to allow that self-hate that you're talking about to to start to build up. And it's 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 not like it needs to build up into a big thing. You can even just notice it here and there where you're starting to get tense and stressed. You're like, ah, no. You know, there's self-hate starting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I want to ask you about this devil archetype because I think mm. that in many ways – uh, growing up Christian background, I guess there's a word for that I can't think of right now. Christianish. One <laughs> <When> that. <laughs> wait, what's the word for like Christian, Catholic, Orthodox, and uh, Quaker? Um, Judeo-Christian, maybe. Yeah, the Judeo-Christian sure. tradition. Yeah, sure. So they have these really <laughs> strong wars against the devil idea which yeah. i think is I, I can see the where they're coming from but i think we can evolve past that if we're willing to if we're willing to see the beautiful side of the devil mm-hmm. and that sounds very um jarring to some people but the devil creates pain in our lives. The devil creates, talking from this grid, I wouldn't normally talk from this grid, but the devil creates pain. The devil creates uh, illusions. It creates suffering. But all of these, these experiences that we could classify as coming from the devil are growth oriented and they, they, refine us to our core so that we can lose the the frivolous exterior that we we aren't truly identified with and so in that way we can thank the devil lucifer for his light you could say Mm -hmm. so that we can accurately see ourselves despite the intense pain and the intense suffering that was caused yeah i mean i think what what we probably are at our core is you know unconditional love right and but in order to experience growth in order to experience life in order to experience something outside of that we needed to create the exact opposite of that we needed to create a binary system of like light and dark and love and hate and you know, all of these things, just so that we could experience a contrast between complete oneness and acceptance and to feel that emptiness or the, you know, the, the lack, the opposite of that. And so we, you know, we fight against that, but it's also what makes life, life, <laughs> you know? And so that's kind of what we're here to experience, 
is to experience pain and to experience healing and growth and to experience creation and destruction and all of those binary things. That's this, that's this game. Hmm. Yeah, I feel it. I mean, I, I came out with a, a video recently on my Instagram page and I called it how to make the devil your spirit guide. And it, it is about, <laughs> well, it, you know, wherever you see fear, that shows you the place you can grow most in life. Yeah. And so there's this, it's, it, fear brings with it excitement and brings with it opportunity. It's that part of you that gets your adrenaline high and you, you feel like you're alive is in the face mm-hmm. of fear. So to, to describe fear as something that we don't want is to warn against it. It feels silly and it feels like you're just going to create a lot more of the thing that you're fighting. <laughs> yes. I, I think focus determines reality. And so the more focus you give something, the more you create it. It's pretty simple, but it's really true. The more you can how did yeah. you learn that that spiritual truth is is there a teaching that you went through like where did you get that i i also agree with it it's come from a lot of different places honestly i think that's one of those things that has just keep coming back to me in different traditions and in different ways that i finally just put together in that little nice clean package of focus determines reality. And I think the person who actually said it like that was my husband was uh, a city and the father of, of Aria. Um, and God, he might've gotten it from Scientology. He's a Scientologist, by the way, his whole family is Scientologists. Um, so, you know, talk about interesting people to talk to. You might want to talk to him <laughs> about his beliefs. Is, but, he, is he a dogmatic Scientologist? No. And he, it's very interesting. So he's actually, he, he, he fights very hard against the Church of Scientology. What? <laughs> but the tools, the tools and the teachings he finds really useful and really interesting. So he's a fascinating dude. Anyway, but I think he's the one who actually said that to me in that way that went click. Okay, that's the phrasing I'm going to use from now on is focus determines reality. Wow. That, that, that is so interesting that, that he's a Scientologist and he has this, this truth. And I wonder if Scientology is a repackaging of the mystery schools from ancient Egypt that, that everything comes down to. Like the, it come, probably comes through the Hermetic tradition and then disseminated through all the other religions that take a piece i don't know (laughs) yeah and there's some zen buddhism in there there's a lot of like if you if you are uh well versed in religious traditions and you read you know the writings of l ron hubbard you will see a lot of different tools from different places that are just put together in this you know little handbook it's really interesting. My understanding of Scientology comes pretty much exclusively from South Park and then one documentary <laughs> called Going Clear. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know anything beyond uh, a sort of snarky view of it, but then it's hard for me to imagine a not snarky view of it. But I guess if I had to create the positive angle, it would be that it takes spiritual truths and puts them in a really fun package so that they're easily mm-hmm. digestible. 
Yeah, that's actually a great way of putting it. And if you look at it, that's what most religions do. I know that, you know, it's it's fun to kind of, you know, bag on Scientologists. And I will say that, like, there are some scary, scary things the Church of Scientology has done. Some very scary, dogmatic, like, controlling weird shit. That, like that, churches that's in general. <laughs> yes. And I was just going to say, and also guess what Catholic Church? Hello. Um, every church. I hate to tell you this, has done terrible, terrible things in the name of their truth, okay? Uh, If you look at the Bible, what is it? It is a bunch of stories and uh, truths from different cultural traditions that were put together into this one book. That's what every religion does. It takes a tool from here and a tool from there, and it puts it together and says, here, here's what helps me. And then, but then what happens is then the followers go, oh, well, okay, now I need to think exactly like this and do exactly what it says and I'll be happy. Sorry, no, doesn't work like that. What you need to do is filter it through your own intuition, take the tools that work well with your intuition and discard the ones that don't and stop judging other people for the tools that work best for them. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when when you're saying that, I remember watching some sort of documentary that was talking about how how the Catholic Church has taken stuff from Tibetan Buddhism, and that's why you get these rosaries that they do, like meditative ritual counting on and stuff. So it looks like everybody's borrowing from everybody. Yeah. You said you've done research to the source and you're saying you believe that the original source is like extraterrestrial. Well, I don't know that the original source is. What I'm saying is that a lot of those same stories that you see all over the world of people talking about, you know, beings that came to help us like angels or, you know, Krishna or whatever you want to call these different, you know, like there's the, the animal headed spirits and the different, you know, these different entities that you find all over the world in all these different cultural traditions at that sort of archetypal level where we recognize these stories, the story of the flood, the story, it's like all these stories come back again and again, the story of dying and being reborn again. All of these stories, all of these archetypes come from somewhere. Now, part of that may be that we were actually visited by creatures that were different from us and so we saw them as like okay these are more powerful than we are they are gods and so we thought of them that way and put them up on this pedestal and maybe they are gods in the sense that they are more powerful than we are and they have these you know energetic or spiritual powers that we don't have now when you want to get on the sort of level above that of the creator, to me, that's a whole different thing that, again, we can't possibly even fathom or know. Do you see what I mean? And so there's all these different levels or layers of like the supernatural. Now, supernatural just means it's above or outside of the natural world that we know here on earth. That is nature as we know it and have experienced it. Now, is there something beyond all natures? Like that there's different natures on different planets and different nature all over the place that is even supernatural to that? Probably. Can we fathom that right now? 
No, because we don't know what all life or all nature looks like or is like. One way that I've I've liked the explanation of that is thinking about how little of our universe we can perceive like our mm-hmm. eyes can only perceive like this tiny fraction of the full spectrum and right. our other senses just also tiny fractions and mm-hmm. and then and, you know it, that's the standard five senses with some of our psychic senses uh, when, when developed can increase that range but then then you get these you can get these ideas of these entities existing on these complete other dimensions planes dimensions Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and then even when you think about our own dimension Mm -hmm. like think about the life of a bacteria like there's this this thing could have an entire existence in seconds who knows Mm -hmm. and then we could be that that second to some entity we Mm -hmm. we could be living between the footsteps of like (laughs) some entity walking on another dimension and when it puts its foot down we're we're gone i don't don't know we have no idea no idea and the thing is like if you think you know oh well i've met it's it's like you know you've had this really cool experience with dmt and you met you know ganesh or you know some ganesh-like creature right now what was that we don't know that happened that was real do you see what I'm saying? And so we know that things like that are real, that there are other dimensions, planes, whatever. There are other entities. There are other creatures. This is real. This stuff is happening. Now, what is that? Is it an extraterrestrial? Is it a spirit? Is it a, you know, dimensional being? Is it, you know, we don't know what to call it exactly. We don't have that vocabulary. And why should we? <laughs> it's, <Yeah. laughs> it's, it's just beyond us. You know, when you when you were speaking earlier about the fact that your your now husband was clouded in a shroud, you mm-hmm. is the way you described it. There is this way that you talked that made that made it seem like you were. Uh, I don't know how to say this. Like you were assuming an objective, like you were assuming an objective reality, mm. and that objective reality is like one that exists outside of your experience. So imagine, imagine if you told that from the perspective of he actually was different. And then mm-hmm. at one moment he suddenly looked different. His appearance changed, his character changed. And just in that moment of like transmutation, just a shift happened. Like, yeah. Because that that seems to be like the way that you perceive it. Uh, if if you were being honest to only your experience, what are your thoughts of perceiving reality from that objective standpoint versus this purely experiential one? But how can we? How can we? All we have is our own perspective and our own experience. We filter everything through that. Even the experiences of others get filtered through our own experience of their experience. And so to talk, even to talk about objective reality just kind of makes me laugh, honestly, because it's like, what the heck is that? How do you know? I don't know. I only know from my perspective. And so he was shrouded to me, you know, from my perspective. I don't know why. I don't know how. <laughs> I will tell you this. So that night, he was um, 
he had already packed up his truck. He was going to leave the next day, like at at dawn. How dramatic is this? He was going to drive off into the sunset, go probably to like Idaho or something and drink himself to death. That was his plan. Really? He was going to commit suicide? He was suicide. done. He was done with life. He was like, I haven't found my person. I haven't created anything. Like I'm finished. I shouldn't Whoa. even be here. And, and, and I was kind of on this trajectory where I was like, I'm going to be alone for a really long time. Like I finally got off that ride, but like, I need to fix myself. I need to like, you know, <laughs> fix my life. And so we were both at this, like letting go, giving up place. And that was what I think allowed us to finally sort of drop that veil of like trying to be a person that we were not anymore and allowed us to see each other as we actually are and to go, hey, I actually like you just like that. You don't have to change. You don't have to do anything. You can just be you and I'm going to love you. And that was what gave us both renewed hope and like our lives have become multitudes better in so many ways from that moment forward. Wow. That's such a special story. <laughs> you, you literally saved a life just by being yourself and releasing. And he saved mine. It was right. a, it was a very mutual saving. If we could learn as individuals and as a species to, to master the art of releasing and to master mm -hmm. the art of relaxing, I think we would all manifest our visions a lot faster and cause a lot less pain. Yeah, I think so too. Well, Adrienne, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. It's been a, a beautiful, long conversation. Before we go, is there any other tidbits of wisdom from your life that you want to say that you want to share with people today? <laughs> we'll be here for hours if I do that. Um, I would just say, I would just reiterate that you are your own savior. And that's what we're here to do is just to figure out how to love ourselves and therefore love other people because you are everyone that you meet. You are everything that you see. Uh, we are all one. Everything is connected. Every time you think that there's a separation, that is, that is a lie that you've just told yourself. And so the more you can just love yourself, the more you can love everything and everyone. So just if you're trying to be somebody that you're not, you can't love you because you can't even see you. <laughs> wow, that's so powerful. I yeah. just the authenticity was the theme of of me coming on your show and it it is so so important and just this concept of being our own savior. That it's funny because one of one of the other guests I just had on the show recently, he he made a joke. He said, uh, when talking about Jesus, he said, you know, just be your own savior, save yourself. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I hate to tell you this, but you're the only one you can save. Yeah. But once you do, as a happy byproduct of that, people will see that and be inspired to save themselves. And so by extension, you will have saved other people just by saving yourself. It's the only way to do it. It's the only way. Otherwise yeah. you create a, a tyranny of trying to save other people without saving yourself. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it never works. It never works. So 
Adrienne, I know that people can follow you by checking out That's Allowed Podcasts, which is available everywhere podcasts are Mm -hmm. available. And I know people can also connect with you personally about doing branding work on themselves Mm -hmm. or or self-story discovery, brand therapy, as we said at the beginning. And I'll I'll put your email in the description. Um, What are some other ways people can get involved with you? Yeah, I have a website, which is That's Allowed, and Allowed is A-L-O-U-D. So it's uh, no no apostrophe, just thatsallowed.com. And you can find out all kinds of stuff there um, about me and about you and about what I can do for you and how I can help. And on Facebook, I have a group called Living Out Loud. And if you'd like to join that group, just let me know, and I'd love to have you. And I do uh, exercises there, daily exercises to just help you get more and more in touch with your authentic self. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to have to join that group too. I don't think I'm. A please do. <laughs> yeah, please do. I would love to have you. Yeah. Before, before I let you go, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on this show and thank you so much for being your authentic self. So vulnerable and open and sharing all of these, these really insightful and crazy parts of yourself that I think <laughs> we can all relate to. And I just wish you so much success in your podcast, so much success on your branding. And I wish that every single person that that comes in contact with you is able to deeply discover themselves and their purpose on earth. So thank you so much for coming. Hear, hear. Amen. Hallelujah.